Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 27th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The WCAB affirmed an order of workers' compensation judge Bonita Edelberg imposing sanctions on lien claimant RH Interpreting and the panel decision of Myrna Campos versus Cairo Nursing Home and Zurich North American. Pursuant to stipulations by the parties, the claim involved an admitted injury to applicant's head, low back, neck, left hand, and left leg. The case in chief was resolved by an order approving compromise and release in 2009. The only issues for trial were the charges billed by lien claimants. The minutes of trial reflected that Joshua Chavez appeared for six lien claimants, including RH Interpreting. The work comp judge allowed Mr. Chavez to offer RH Interpreting's statement of services and evidence. He claimed the total amount of $351 for interpreting at a functional capacity evaluation and an occupational profile analysis, both occurring in 2008 at the same address. Mr. Chavez, however, offered no other documentary evidence and presented no witnesses. The trial judge ordered that RH Interpreting should take nothing on its bill or lien, which was disallowed, and that there was no legal basis for petitioner to proceed to trial. The judge also found that the activities undertaken by the lien claimant were egregious and frivolous, warranting sanctions in the sum of $2,500. The WCAB denied reconsideration and affirmed the order of sanctions, concluding that, in light of RH Interpreting's utter failure to even remotely approach the burden of proof necessary to establish its lien, the work comp judge properly concluded that lien claimant was bringing a claim or asserting a position that was indisputably without merit and or presenting a claim or raising an issue that was not warranted under the law. Accordingly, the imposition of sanctions was appropriate. And in medical news, a leading group of U.S. doctors is trying to tackle the costly problem of excessive medical testing. The American College of Physicians, or ACP, is the largest U.S. medical specialty group. They are rolling out guidelines to help doctors better identify when patients should screen for specific diseases, and when they can be spared the cost and potentially invasive procedures that follow. ACP members include more than 132,000 physicians mainly focused on internal medicine. Excessive testing costs as much as $250 billion per year. In an article published last month in the Annuals of Internal Medicine, the ACP cited 37 clinical situations where screening did not promote health and might actually hurt patients. Health economists and other policy advisors question whether doctors can be trusted to make the right calls. A study published in the October 2011 issue of the British Medical Journal showed that almost half of doctors involved in setting clinical guidelines in the United States and Canada for diabetes and cholesterol between 2000 and 2010 had conflicts of interest. MIT healthcare economist Dr. Jonathan Gruber cites estimates that about $80 billion, or nearly one-third of all healthcare spending, is wasted in unnecessary diagnostic tests, procedures, and extra days in the hospital. 
Treatment guidelines will help curb overabuse, but Gruber and others would prefer the government set them. The ACP last year published guidelines on using imaging studies to evaluate lower back pain, a common ailment where expensive diagnostic evaluation does not always help and sometimes hurts patients. Medicare data shows that doctors often order MRI scans for patients with low back pain who have not tried less invasive, less expensive treatments such as physical therapy. An MRI frequently leads to surgery. One study by the National Institutes of Health that used data from the government's Medicare health plan for the elderly concluded doctors who prescribe MRI scans tend to follow up with even more expensive surgery. Dr. Daniel Resnick, a neurosurgeon who specializes in spine surgery, has been involved for years in establishing guidelines with the North American Spine Society, which represents 6,500 physicians. He said some fellow surgeons got very angry when his group rolled out their guidelines. Resnick said that for years, spine surgeons treated certain types of back pain by fusing the front and the back of two discs, which for billing purposes were two separate procedures. Today, guidelines recommend fusing either the front or the back of the discs, not both. Resnick said he respects the ACP effort and believes it is the responsibility of medical societies to develop these guidelines. A new study says that about 15% of surgeons have alcohol abuse or dependency problems, a rate that is somewhat higher than the rest of the population. The researchers also found that surgeons who showed signs of alcoholism were 45% more likely to admit that they had a major medical error in the past three months. The researchers at the University of Washington sent out a survey to more than 25,000 surgeons. The questions asked about work, lifestyle, and mood, and several were used to screen for alcohol abuse or dependency. Overall, 15% of surgeons showed signs of alcohol problems. Other studies have estimated that among the general population, the number is about 9%. Alcohol problems were linked with the doctors reporting depression and burnout as well. Surgery is considered particularly demanding and a uh, demanding specialty because of the percent of emergencies, the percent of after-hours work, and energy and concentration that is required to perform the job well. About 14% of male surgeons and 25% of female surgeons showed signs of alcohol problems. Researchers concluded that the percent of surgeons with alcoholism is possibly underestimated in this study. And now our fraud report. Federal officials said they recovered more than $4.1 billion from Medicare and Medicaid fraud-busting efforts in 2011. Attorney General Eric Holder said this represents the highest amount recovered in a single year. According to the report, the government won or negotiated $2.4 billion in health care fraud judgments last fiscal year. With other fees and results from previous years, they ultimately deposited $4.1 billion with the Treasury Department or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Holder said last year, federal officials opened 1,100 criminal health care fraud investigations, 
charging more than 1,400 suspects and convicting more than 700 of them. The Department of Justice also opened nearly 1,000 new civil cases and netted $2.4 billion under the False Claims Act. The Healthcare Fraud and Abuse Control Program report said every dollar invested in Medicare fraud fighting efforts returned $7.2 to taxpayers on average for the past three years. The return on investment since the program's inception in 1997 is $5.1 for every dollar spent, the report also said. Federal officials credited some of their success to work by nine so-called strike force teams that target fraught hotspots scams that are usually pre uh, prevalent in cities such as Los Angeles, Houston, New York, Baton Rouge, Tampa, Chicago, and Dallas. New strike force teams are planned in other hotspot cities, although the department has a policy of not naming future targets. <clears throat> and in regulatory news, each year, the California Chamber of Commerce creates a list of job killer bills pending in Sacramento, hoping to identify legislation that it believes will decimate economic and job growth in California. The Chamber will track the bills throughout the legislative session and work to educate legislatures about the serious consequences these bills will have on the state. This year, the job killer bill list for 2012 was published early. Legislation proposing government-run health care was on hold in the Senate Fiscal Committee last year, but was re uh, released and moved to the Senate floor this January. SB 810 would create a new government-run, multi-billion dollar socialized health care system, supported by an unspecified premium structure to be determined by 2014 and by prohibiting the sale of any private health care insurance. This bill, however, failed passage in the Senate. Another bill on the list, AB 832, would have imposed a hidden tax on software with a majority vote bill by making it virtually impossible for the owner to show that the software is eligible for a property tax exemption. This bill has been amended to remove the chamber's opposition and job killer status. A third bill, AB 1208, creates uncertainty, inefficiency, and unpredictability for litigants, further aggravating California's reputation as a bad place to do business by decentralizing control of trial court funds. So far, this year's workers' compensation has not become a topic of interest in Sacramento, nor an issue of concern for the California Chamber of Commerce. Legislative action will determine whether other bills join the 2012 list of proposed laws. The California Workers' Compensation Institute has launched a new series of research publications, California Workers' Compensation Industry Scorecards. Each scorecard will profile claimant characteristics and show the claim distributions for injuries within a specific diagnostic category broken out by industry sector, claim type, and other categories. Both the percent of claims and percent of loss payments are also broken out by ICD-9 diagnostic codes. The first scorecard in the series, released this week, focuses on claims involving medical back problems without spinal cord involvement that consist primarily of back 
strains, and sprains. The scorecard notes that these are among the most common work injuries in California, accounting for one out of every six work injury claims in the state, and more than a quarter of total workers' compensation paid losses. The Institute plans to roll out the Injury Scorecard series over the next several months, and all 10 scorecards will be available to CWCI members and research subscribers who log on to the Institute's website. The next scorecard in the series, scheduled to be released next month, will examine claims involving more serious back injuries. And in other news, results are now available for the 2011 Workers' Compensation Subrogation Study conducted by Ward Group on behalf of the National Association of Subrogation Professionals. Findings of this study show workers' compensation subrogation efficiency has markedly increased over the past few years. The number of days from when a workers' compensation claim is identified as having subrogation potential to when that subrogation file is closed has decreased 14% from 418 days in 2008 to 368 days in 2010. The comprehensive study focused on subrogation organizational structure, business practices, and performance metrics. The increase in efficiency was primarily driven by an increase in the speed of closure of files without subrogation recoveries. Companies are more quickly identifying and closing lower value files without subrogation potential in order to focus on those claims more likely to result in recovery. The study identified several notable trends in workers' compensation subrogation practices, including 88% of companies now have a centralized subrogation organizational structure. Only 27% of companies utilize software to identify subrogation opportunities. And 68% of subrogation files were closed without recovery in 2010. The DWC, in conjunction with its vendor partners, is continuing to host electronic filing expos, the latest one in San Bernardino. The events are free and anyone interested in e-filing or jet file is encouraged to attend. This was the fifth e-filing expo hosted by the DWC following events in Santa Ana, Los Angeles, Van Nuys, and Oakland. It's the first one in San Bernardino County. The expo gives filers a chance to explore options in electronic filing and take a closer look at jet file, said Mark Feudum, acting associate chief judge for Eames. Electronic filing is the fastest way to get documents into Eames, which is the DWC's electronic case management system for the work comp courts. There are two ways to file electronically, either e-forms or the JET file. JET file is best suited for large volume filers of the six most used court forms, while e-forms are available for all forms. The expos provide information about and demonstrations of both filing methods. Filers looking for faster, easier, and more cost-effective alternatives to paper forms are encouraged to attend these electronic filing expos. And with that, that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And please remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone or your iPad or your iPod. 
by searching for the WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I am Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks again for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for some more news.